We're continuing in the Gospel of Mark for our, uh, our sermon series this summer, and, um, and uh, so you know, we're getting right towards the end, um, some of the final stories uh, of the Gospel today. Um, Mark will be the reader today. Today's reading is uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. It says there's 51 up there, but we're going to go ahead and do 52. It can be found on page 939 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Just as he was speaking, Judas... One of the twelve appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me as we begin? Our God of grace, we come to you and to this space um, more frail and more broken than we want to admit. Sometimes, Sometimes our lives are messier than we even realize ourselves until something happens that exposes it. And the stories of this book that we read from today tell us over and over again that you see us in all of our, our mess and our magnificence. You see us in our beauty and in our frailty. And you decide to move towards us in love and in grace. And in fact, to take on the mess and the frailty and the fragmentation yourself through your son Jesus. As we explore that story through the Gospel of Mark, I pray now that you would speak to us through that grace, that we're more of a mess than we care to admit, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined, and transform our lives as we hear these words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever been in a situation where someone is listening, maybe you're the listener or maybe you're the speaker, and they don't at all, the person doesn't at all hear what the other person is really saying, and they kind of reply with what they kind of wish almost that, that, that you had said, and maybe, maybe you're the one talking, and you kind of go, you know, no, missed it. One of my favorite lines uh, from the movie, the, the classic um, paradigm-shifting, culture-shaping movie, uh, Dumb and Dumber, um, <laughs> Uh, it was when, when uh, the main character, he says, uh, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> See, some of you know what, I don't even have to say the scene, but so he asks her, he asks the beautiful, attractive woman he's interested in, what, what do you think my chances are like? And she says, not good. 
And she's trying to be so kind and let him down easy. She's not good. And he says, not good like, like one in a hundred? And she says, like, more like one in a million. And he's in this long pause, and he says, so you're telling me there's a chance? Woo! Right? So adventures in hearing what's not being said. And a lot of times I feel like when people quote Jesus or refer to Jesus, that's actually what's happening. That's what we like to do. We like to, um, um, you know, kind of on the fly, on the quick, kind of refer to Jesus or something we know about him, something we learned about him, something we think we've learned about him, and um, align that with something that we feel strongly about. And so one of the examples I heard recently was someone um, saying kind of quickly off the cuff that Jesus was a revolutionary figure because he upset, you know, he clearly had to have upset the, the powers that be because he got the death of a criminal. He got crucifixion. We do this a lot, you know, and this one is actually exciting, right? If Jesus is a revolutionary figure, then whatever kinds of issues that we want to stand up and rise up against, then if Jesus is a revolutionary figure in that kind of stand-up, rise-up kind of way, then he certainly kind of backs us in this cause that we want to rise up or stand up against. Well, the gospel writer Mark... Um, is dealing really with that issue of standing up, rising up. He's dealing with something that I'm going to call today the way of the sword. The sword is a key word in this text, just like uh, in the text before this and last week we were talking and the words were more being watchful and the hour and sleeping. Those were some of the key words. Mark does this. He, he plants these key words in, in these stories to give us a, a big message of what, what we should focus on. Well, this week it's sword. The presence of swords in here. So let's talk about the way of the sword. What Mark, basically what Mark shows us here is going to confirm for us exactly what kind of revolutionary figure Jesus is. And it's not going to be the one we expect. In fact, he, he's going to show us um, three ways, at least that's what I'm going to deal with today, three ways that we, three options we have for trying to take up the way of the sword often saying, oh, Jesus is our revolutionary figure, and, and we take up the way of the sword. There's three ways we do this in our lives, but all three of them get it wrong. All three of them avoid the way that Jesus leads us. They, they actually lead us astray from the incredible way that Jesus uh, leads us into and opens up freely a new way of life for us that we miss if we pursue these ways. So let's look at... Um, well, basically, they're, they're shown by different characters in the story. We have marshalling our forces that's one thing we do we have lashing out and we have running away so marshal forces lash lash out run away those are the three options in the way of the sword let's look at them first of all you have these armed thugs in verse 43 did you catch that in verse 43 we have these i don't know if they were hired or um, just chips were cashed in here Um, but these guys these guys are thugs and they're being led by judas to betray Jesus. They come with swords and clubs. And they're sent from who? They're sent from the, some of the religious power people um, of the day. It's listed there. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now, Jesus had dealt a lot with this, these different groups of religious leaders. You have a, an oppressed group of people, the first century Jewish folks. And um, they're really the nobodies of history that we wouldn't even know about if it wasn't for these stories here. We wouldn't know about these people, the, the families that Jesus came from, for example, and his disciples. We wouldn't know about them. 
They're not the people that get recorded about in history, but there were some in that group of people that had more of the little, bit of, little bits of leverage of power that they were allowed, and those would be these people who were sending the thugs. All right, so the, the priests, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the elders. And they're irritated. They're irritated by Jesus because he's gotten under their skin because what Jesus should have done, Jesus clearly had some ability to draw a crowd. And what he should have done is marshaled all of the forces, marshaled all of the energy, and, and brought them all against the true political enemy of the day. But he didn't. And instead, he dealt with these leaders on the topic of their own spiritual corruption instead of the enemy's political corruption. So Jesus became a problem. He became an irritation. And they did what, uh, really what we all do when Jesus becomes our problem or irritation. They marshaled their forces against him and they, they went about using control and they went about using um, anything to protect their ways and they got pushy. And this is actually a, a little lesson about Jesus. If you're um, exploring Christianity, if you're trying to figure out who is Jesus, what does it mean to be a Christian, there's sort of a litmus test if you're getting to know the real Jesus and that is if Jesus begins to expose things in your life and you get defensive. That's, that, that's a part of, of knowing that you're you're actually dealing with the real Jesus, that he's not just aligning with everything you believe, he's not just affirming everything that you think and believe. He's beginning to expose some things, and you begin to feel defensive. That's the real Jesus. And so these people react just like we would react, and they grab the little bits of power they have. They, they can pay off Judas to betray Jesus. They can actually drum up a crowd at just the right time to shout crucify to get him handed over, and they can... Um, they can end up sending some false, you know, maybe paying some people to give some false testimony, things that aren't true about Jesus, and he ends up going to the cross. It's the way of the sword. It's actually not just, you know, you can be wrapped up in the way of the sword, and it's not just, uh, not just fighting. It's not just violence. It doesn't have to end in someone getting killed. Because the way of the sword is much more complex and much more... Um, of just a common everyday thing that we're all wrapped up in. Let me give you a few little snippets, little pictures of it. You're wrapped up in the sword when you say, my life is mine, I, I set my goals, I can accomplish my dreams, I want what I want, and so then I you know, marshal all of my forces and I grab hold of it with my own plans and my efforts. That's, that's actually a part, of trickle down from the way of the sword. Or... Um, just this very idea that to, be, to advance and to get ahead and to progress in life means to have more money and, or more ability to get the things that you want. That's actually part of the way of the sword. Or just the idea, this one it might even take some convincing, but just the idea that I, I live for being liked, I live for recognition, uh, even if I don't come off like a pompous person who's always talking, I still somewhere down, deep down, I live for being liked. I live for a recognition, and so I surround myself with likable people just like me. That's actually all part of the way of the sword, and it's a little tricky to realize, it's a little tricky to expose this as not ideal, as actually not the, the, the most preferable way for our lives to end up. So let me just show you what happens. Just, just think with me about what happens if you unlock these things if they didn't have as much power over you. Just imagine what you would be like if you were completely free from being obsessed with what you want in life. If the 
the things that meant so much to you, the things that you were setting your whole heart on, your hopes and your dreams, they suddenly lost their grip over you. What would, what would happen? You'd actually be freed up to be available and you'd, you'd see an ability to be unselfish in a way that you never did before. What about, what if, what if the grip of, the iron grip of money and possessions completely released itself in your life and you just suddenly, what would happen? You'd be able to spend your money in joyful ways. Whenever you'd have it, you could spend it in joyful ways for things that weren't selfish. When you didn't have it, it wouldn't ruin you. In fact, you might even have such a generosity that your parents might say, that's unwise, right? You need, you need money. You need, that, you need a certain amount of savings built up. And, and your reply would be, you know, the funny thing is I actually, I actually don't. If, if, right, if we could be unlocked from this um, idea that the, well, the way of the sword... Or what if you could finally stop caring what people thought about you? What if you could fully, really, truly not care about recognition or about likability or whether people need you? Well, suddenly a door would be opened up to a brand new courage that you've always longed after, a true courage and a true boldness. That's, I think, what it would look like if we could get unlocked. That's, I, I just want to show you that the ways of the sword as normal and as everyday as it seems, has a weakness. But we don't buy it very quickly. Jesus elucidates the opposite way, his way, in another place in Scripture that's known as the Beatitudes, when he says, listen to this list. Listen to how, well, just listen to it, I guess. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That list doesn't sit very well with us, does it? I mean, some of those things maybe we can stomach, peacemakers, pure in heart, merciful, but just about all the rest of them we kind of go, oh, what? what's going on with that? What's that list all about? Basically, those are places we don't want to end up. Meek, mourning, poor in spirit, persecuted, treated unfairly, insulted, false things said about us. Blessed. Blessed are you if you're there. Um, What does it look like? I mean, basically, how do you picture an army of meek people? Right? Jesus says, blessed are the meek, you know? And so if, if there's some new way, not the way of the sword, not the way of taking up and taking charge and controlling, what's the new way? What does it look like? What does an army of meek people look like? Perhaps it looks a little bit like what happened once um, from people in the Christian church, written about by John Ortberg in his book, Who Is This Man? Talking about Jesus. 
He says, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius around AD 165, an epidemic of what may have been smallpox killed somewhere between a third and a fourth of the population, including Marcus Aurelius himself. A little less than a century later came a second epidemic in which at its height, 5,000 people were reported dying daily in the city of Rome alone. For the most part, people responded in panic. Uh, The Greek historian Thucydides wrote about how people in Athens responded during an earlier plague. They died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished, perished through lack of inattention or care. The, the bodies of the dying were heaped up, one on top of another. No fear of God or law or man had a restraining influence. And now what was happening in Greece was happening in Rome. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from the dearest, their dearest, throwing them onto the roads before their de- they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread of contagion and fatal disease. He says, but there was in that world a community, let's call them the community of the, the, the army of the meek. There was, in that world, there was a community that remembered they followed a man who would touch lepers while they were unclean, who told his disciples to go heal the sick, who got in arguments at dinner that embarrassed whole tables. Dionysius, a third century bishop of Alexandria, wrote about the actions during the plagues. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. But we resist this naturally. But that's the way that Jesus leads us on. That's the alternative to the way of the sword. Naturally, we resist it. Naturally, we go after maybe a hybrid of it. As Professor uh, C. John Somerville writes, He talks about how Christianity made its way throughout the world in the midst of shame-honor cultures and how there's a shift that happened that had never happened before um, because all cultures were shame-honor cultures before Christianity had an influence. But he says this interesting piece. He says, We know that the Anglo-Saxons and all shame-honor cultures, when they first heard the Christian message, were incredulous because they couldn't see how any society or person could survive that did not fear and respect strength. So they merged their Christian value with their older one, the shame-honor one, and that's the reason why European Christianity preached the Crusades, because they believed losing Jerusalem was an affront to the honor of God and their own honor. I just just feel like that's an interesting historical example of how we always hang on to the way of the sword. (laughs) We can't seem to fully let go of it. Like Peter, because he lashes out. Secondly, Peter in verse 47, it doesn't say in this passage that it's Peter. Of course, we learn that from the Gospel of John when he's talking about the same story and tells us that it was Peter, which doesn't surprise you if you've known some of the stories about Peter, that he's the one uh, impulsively lashing out with a sword. And so it says, one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his ear. As soon as we feel pressure, as soon as the world closes in on us, as soon as we get in a place of difficulty or suffering, what happens? We grab for the sword hilt like Peter. We grab for the way of the sword. We grab to control. We grab money. We grab hold of things dishonestly. We manage. We try to achieve. We try to ally ourselves with people. We lash out. 
even, so Peter's this representative follower of Jesus. He's there to hear the Beatitudes spoken. He's been along with all the teaches, all, teachings all along. And yet he still lashes out. He still chooses the way of the sword. When the pressure's on, think about that for yourself. When the pressure's on, you can pretty much expect that's what you're going to do. Difficulty comes your way, what are you going to do? You're going to kind of freak out, right? You're going to try to manage things. You're going to hypermanage. You're going to grab hold of things. You're going to try to use your connections. You're going to try to eliminate the difficulty and get rid of the suffering because, no, life shouldn't be like this. This is wrong. This is, this is unfair, we say. We lash out. Or maybe if none of that works, we start to numb out. We start to go some route like entertainment or sex or some drug or something that just takes the edge off because we know that's not a good place to be, the place of suffering, the place of difficulty. The Beatitudes describe a place basically that is uh, repulsive to us, that we, we lash out against. <laughs> and in this story, Peter is the example of the lashing out. And this is what Tim Keller says about this in his book about Jesus. He says, aren't we kind of like Peter? We say we're on the side of justice, of peace, of fairness. And when a challenge arises, we feel for the sword hilt. We merge the kingdom of this world, sword on top, then money, power, success, and recognition into our philosophy, whether it's Christianity or something else. We're exactly like Peter, he says. To Peter and to all of us, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's completely different. This is how I'm going to change things. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to serve and sacrifice for others. I'm not going to repay evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. I will give up my power, my life. Weakness, poverty, suffering, and rejection will now be at the top of the list. Did you hear that? Weakness, poverty, suffering, and rejection will now be at the top of the list. My revolution comes without the sword. It is the first true revolution. So, what am I saying? Am I saying um, you should take on a vow of voluntary poverty after today? That you should, um, you know, something extreme, right? Something that fits some of those beatitudes. You should quit your job. Is that what I'm saying? You should, um, you should, uh, if you're... Uh, a family, you should adopt children who have really high, high needs or handicaps and care for them the rest of your life. You should take in refugees. Well, you know, of course, all of those things, you'd be at home in the long tradition of the Christian faith if you did any of that stuff. Uh, at least those things creep up and pop up like popcorn amidst the history of the Christian church. In some ways, the very existence of things like that, the fact that I can list certain people who fit some of those actions that I've met or seen or heard of those people, it gives, it's a sort of the church's credibility factors that are out there. The fact that that still happens, that that exists, gives credibility to the whole church. But really today, the question is, you know, perhaps God leads you to something like that, but the question really for all of us is the credibility of your own faith, your own personal faith. And for this, so for this, we need something much bigger. For this, you can't, if, you, if Jesus is just your teacher, 
and you're just supposed to follow his example, it's going to crush you. You have to see that he does so much more than just be your example. He actually removes the fear of the sword over your head. We see this if we look at verse 51. We see the man running away. We see the biblical streaker. There he is. He's, he's grabbed, his garment is grabbed, and he runs away naked. Verse 51. What's going on with that? Why are we told that, right? You know, some people say, well, there's this long tradition of saying, well, that's actually the gospel writer Mark. Um, that's, that's him sort of, you know, he would have been a young man at that time. He, he might have been one of the followers, and that's, that's sort of him putting, giving his cameo appearance right in the story. Um, perhaps. But I think what we have going on here at least what I want to consider is going on here, is that here we are in a garden and there's a man fleeing naked. We're reminded of another garden. We're reminded of uh, a couple of people fleeing from God. We're reminded of their fear of being naked in God's presence. And so we're brought back to this whole bigger story because I don't know if you remember at the end of the, that early chapter in Genesis uh, the fall of Adam and Eve, that when they're banished from the garden, what is there keeping them out from now on? There's this, this sword, this flaming sword waving, keeping them out. It's the sword, it's God's messenger, it's an angel, it's, it's God's divine justice or God's divine judgment keeping them out. The sword waving, the sword on fire. It's terrifying really when you think about it. And so when we look in this story, we see another garden, and we see, we see that some people have, have marshaled their forces and sent the thugs. We see that another has lashed out with the sword, and we see another one running away. Those are all approaches of the sword that you have before you. And there's one person in the story who stays, doesn't take any of those options, doesn't take up the way of the sword, takes up the way of the cross, in the way of the cross, by Jesus taking the way of the cross, he's actually taking, he's going under the sword, don't you see? He's, he's taking the blade on himself so that the blade is never over our heads, ever again. He's extinguishing once and for all that flaming sword that keeps us out of paradise, that keeps us out of the presence of God. He's extinguishing it and removing it. And what is being replaced by that is Jesus says no to, the sword, no to the sword and goes to the cross. That flaming sword of justice and judgment is replaced by the all-embracing arms of God the Father, welcoming all of us back in. When you, when you know... That, that, that has happened. When that begins to connect with your life, when that begins to actually touch down on some of the fears that you have, friends, do you know the kind of change that's possible? The kind of transformation in your life? That's, but we don't know the half of what it's like to fully understand that the sword has been removed and the all-embracing arms of God have opened wide for us to come home. When you know that, Money is transformed in your life. Being liked, recognition, status is transformed in your life. Power 
your plans, your hopes and dreams that seem so central, so real to you, all of it becomes completely transformed and rerouted. That's what happens if you know the way of Jesus. And you don't just know it as your example, but you know he's, he's opened it up. The sword is gone. You're welcomed in. Let's pray that we understand that and live that out. Our gracious God, we know so little. We know so little of how much you have extinguished the sword over our heads. Some of us live in so much fear. Some of us live in so much worry. Some of us live uh, in so much agitation. And we're chasing after things. And a lot of the times we just know that it's not healthy or we know that it's not providing the satisfaction we long for. Would you please open up the floodgates so that we could experience your gracious love in tangible ways, in ways that convince us to lay down our swords, to lay down our control, to lay down our money, our power, our neediness, our agitation, our striving, and just receive freely what you give us. Would you embrace us and show the fruit of that through this church? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.